Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 12 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I've discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you for taking the time to give the show a listen. I really appreciate you being here. If you're new to the show, thanks for coming and hanging out with us. Grab a chair from the pile over there and get yourself situated by the fire. My dog Dee is going to be making the rounds to say hello and give your leg a good sniffing. It's just standard procedure though, so don't make any sudden movements. On today's episode, we're going to be taking a journey with one of the PlayStation games I used to play until my fingers bled when I was younger. In my youth, the Resident Evil series was probably my favorite game series, and I was actively playing Resident Evil 2 pretty frequently around this time. Once I got word that a new game was on the horizon from the creators of Resident Evil, I was immediately intrigued. Soon, what would later be called Resident Evil with Dinosaurs made its way to my PlayStation library and I could not get enough of the gameplay, the concept, and the overall thrill it was to experience. This week, we're going to be talking about Dino Crisis for the Sony PlayStation. Dino Crisis was directed by Shinji Mikami, the same man who directed the original Resident Evil and produced Resident Evil 2. Resident Evil was the game that birthed the survival horror genre, and I think it's easy to lump Dino Crisis into this category, but I read somewhere that Mikami himself didn't think of this game as survival horror. He called it panic horror. And when I think about it, I think Mikami is pretty spot on with this description. Sure, the typical survival horror elements are there, limited resources such as ammo and healing items, somewhat fixed camera angles, and an overwhelming enemy force. Now while all of that is present in Dino Crisis, the panic part of the horror comes by way of the type of enemy in this game. The dinosaurs that roam around are not like the zombies in the Resident Evil games. Zombies typically didn't follow you from room to room, and when you kill them, they generally stay dead to the point that you can slowly conquer the play area. In Dino Crisis, defeating dinosaurs doesn't mean that they'll be gone permanently from an area, and they can follow you from room to room, and they generally do follow you from room to room. More than that, danger is lurking around every corner. Just because you can't see them doesn't mean that they aren't there. In some survival horror games, you can create your own safety with careful resource planning and enemy engagement. In Dino Crisis, you can do all of this and still not feel safe. I think this is what really makes this game panic horror by Mikami's definition and one of the reasons that I love this game so much. It's a -a one-of-a-kind experience and I cannot wait to tell you about it. Now before we get into it, I usually take some time to give everyone a peek behind the scenes here in the Retro Wildlands and give you all an idea of how the show is going, what I'm working on, and potentially what's coming down the road here in future episodes. If none of this interests you, not a worry, you can skip ahead about 5-10 to minutes and you should hit the Dino Crisis part of the episode. If you check the episode description, there should be an exact timestamp if you're not looking to waste any time skipping around. But by all means, you're more than welcome to stick around and hear me ramble for a little bit. Alright, first up, download numbers across all episodes of the podcast are still growing slowly, which is awesome. A huge thank you to those of you that have given the show a chance and spread the word around. Episode 10, which was the Simpsons Arcade Game episode where I did a short interview with my stepdaughter, is our most downloaded episode so far. I'm pretty convinced, though, that it's because my little girl was just repeatedly listening to the show over and over since most of the episode downloads happened on a single day, but it's still pretty cool to see. It's definitely made her happy seeing the number of downloads as high as it is, so that's pretty awesome. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, you should go check it out. All in all, though, we're slowly growing little by little. And while the majority of the downloads are coming from the United States, Listeners are starting to pop up all over the place. Places like Mexico, Canada, Germany, France, Djibouti, Italy, Jamaica, St. Lucia, Nicaragua, New Zealand, and Taiwan. Holy shit, you guys. Please accept my warmest of welcomes and thank you for checking us out. I was fairly convinced this podcast would just get a couple downloads at best, and that would be that. 
but I'm already floored by everyone who's given the show a chance, so thank you again. So with that said, let's keep the train rolling. If you haven't already, please consider connecting with us over on social media. I have accounts set up for the Retro Wildlands over on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter that you can find by searching at Retro Wildlands. It may not be all that interesting for you all, but for me, I'm working through some ideas to make our pages somewhat more appealing. To be clear, I am not a social media expert, and I am not social media savvy at all. A lot of what I'm doing over there is just flying by the seat of my pants, and I'm posting what I think people might be interested in. You know, some gaming pictures, podcast updates, some gameplay videos I've been editing, and of course the occasional puppy photo or two. So if any of this sounds remotely interesting, please consider joining us on social. Starting this episode as well, I'm going to put a call out for questions or comments people would like me to read and answer during the show's intro. There are a couple other podcasts that I listen to that allow listeners to interact with the show this way, and it's something that I personally like to do, so I thought it would be cool to open up the Wildlands in this way. So if you want to drop a comment about the game that we'll be covering the following week, good or bad, I'll post a call for comments on my social media platforms. I'm looking to make that posting on the weekend, either Saturday or Sunday, so be on the lookout for that. I'm also up for any questions or comments that pertain to gaming in general, questions or comments about the podcast, questions directed toward myself, games that you'd like to see covered on an episode, or whatever else you want to talk about. I just wanted to see about giving listeners to the show an option to interact a little bit and engage a bit more. So what games have I been playing through and what's coming up on the podcast? I keep talking about Toe Jam and Earl, but it's getting the same treatment it got when I was younger. I would start to play it, have a good time with it, but then I would just get distracted by something else. This week, I started thinking about Dino Crisis, and well, here's today's episode. It's not to say that I don't like Toe Jam and Earl, I just need to commit to it. Although I'm not doing myself any favors in that area because I've already distracted myself and played through Contra on the original Nintendo, and I kind of want to do an episode on that soon. I also have an idea for an episode I want to do for the Thursday before Halloween this year, but that's not 100% in stone yet, so I'll keep the name of that episode close to my chest for now, in case that doesn't work out. I'm sure every other content creator out there is going to be milking the Halloween teat for all it's worth the next few months, and I really don't want to be that guy, but I love Halloween, and I love scary things, so I'm finding it very easy to be caught up in that flow. That's partly why I decided to do Dino Crisis today. I was working through what scarier, suspenseful games I have and just seemed like the right time to go back and revisit this one. I've also had my eye on Zombies Ate My Neighbors. It has been a very, very long time since I've popped this one in, but it certainly fits the theme. Other than that, this week has been devoted to replaying Dino Crisis, so that's all that's been on my plate for the time being. I mentioned last week that I'm fixing to do an episode on Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII since the remake is slated to drop in December of this year. I'm really excited for the new version, and I will definitely be purchasing it. I thought I saw there was going to be a special Steelbook edition of that game coming out, but I can't seem to find that listed anywhere, so I'm wondering if that might be a Japan-only sort of thing. I really hope it's not, because I would love to get something a little special for the remake. When Final Fantasy VII Remake was announced and the pre-order started, I got a hold of the biggest collector's edition they had. It's the one with a soundtrack CD, art book, some DLC extras, and the figure of Cloud that's sitting on top of his hardy Daytona motorcycle. Can't remember the name of that edition, but I've been calling it the Final Fantasy VII Remake Super Soldier Mega Premium Holy Shit Edition. It was pretty awesome, so hoping something like that comes with the Crisis Core Remake too. If someone sees anything like that coming out, please let me know. In any case, I'll be playing through the original PSP game, and I'll have an episode out for it at some point down the road. And I think with that, that's going to wrap things up. It's time to get to the main event, Dino Crisis for the Sony PlayStation. Released on July 1st, 1999, this panic horror game centers around a team of four covert operatives sent to Ibis Island, to find and acquire a Dr. Edward Kirk. Kirk, who was presumed dead some years ago, has resurfaced and is leading an unknown, non-weapons-based project. Once the team arrives on the island, it becomes abundantly clear that something is terribly wrong. 
There are no obvious signs of life, but the team comes across clues that allude to a battle that just took place. As the team makes their way deeper into the facility, things that should have been long extinct start coming out of the shadows. It's going to be up to Regina to navigate the facility with the surviving members of her team, locate and secure Dr. Kirk, and make it out alive. Raw instinct will take over during this adrenaline-pumping journey. You'll find yourself being pursued by a relentless prehistoric terror, and all of a sudden, your mission will become a desperate fight for survival. I think all of us have that special video game, movie, or TV show that instantly sparks memories of nostalgia just by the mere mention of its name. As far as a movie goes, Top Gun is a great example for myself. It's a movie that gives me the warm and fuzzies just by hearing the name, and it takes me back to a time when I was younger and didn't really know where I was heading in life. Anyone remember old school Saturday morning cartoons? Even though I grew up as an only child, I still got up early, wolfed down breakfast, and got set up by the TV for shows like the original Power Rangers, the X-Men animated series, and the Spider-Man animated series. Thinking about these things now, I can't help but be reminded of a time when things were simpler and the world wasn't as batshit crazy as it can be today. Reminds me how the only concern I had when I was little was getting all my chores done to the satisfaction of my parental units so I could go back to the PlayStation and continue my adventures in whatever game world I was wandering through at the time. Now, Dino Crisis was one of those games for me. Resident Evil 2 had come out just a year prior, and I was already playing it over and over again thanks to the DualShock Edition's Extreme Battle Mode. Dino Crisis came from the same minds over at Capcom, and it was directed by the same man who directed the original Resident Evil, Shinji Mikami. Not that I knew who the hell that was back when I was a kid. All I knew was the back of the CD case for Dino Crisis said, from the creators of Resident Evil. That was more than enough to seal the deal for me. I knew I wanted to play this game. And come on, it had dinosaurs. The blockbuster movie Jurassic Park was released back in 1993, and it was hard not to see the parallels. Besides, fighting brainless zombies and other creatures was one thing. Battling against dinosaurs? That had to be a new experience, and I couldn't wait to try it. Even the back of the CD case says, Advanced Predatory AI. Are you the hunter or the hunted? Ah, just reading that gives me chills right now. Even though I got done replaying this game this past week, I already want to go back to it. Before last week, the last time I played Dino Crisis was when I was young. Playing it now, all the memories of me staying up past my bedtime came flooding back. My parents eventually allowed me to have a TV in my room, so I would take the PlayStation to hook it up and play it. The TV I had wasn't even all that big, but I had it resting on my nightstand just next to my bed. I would stay up way past bedtime while I played it, too. Lights out, wrapped in my blanket, with a bowl of pretzels by my side if I could be so lucky. I couldn't get enough of the suspense that the game created. While I keep saying Dino Crisis is Resident Evil but with dinosaurs, it is much more than that. It excited me and scared me in different ways, and in all the right ways, if that even makes sense. Now. Let's dial all this back and start from the beginning, shall we? So, what is this game? Dino Crisis is a third-person survival horror game where you play as Regina, a special forces operative who is sent in with a team to Ibis Island, and her mission is to locate and retrieve a Dr. Edward Kirk, who has been discovered to be on the island. We learn of this information by way of an email communication from a man named Tom. 
Tom is an undercover asset who has infiltrated a suspected military experiment research facility on Ibis Island. Now let me go ahead and access that communication. Just give me one second. All right, here we go. The second report from Military Experiment Facility. Agent name, Tom. Tom has made his way into the facility posing as a researcher. This mission is to locate evidence pertaining to the development of new type weapons at the facility, but so far nothing has been discovered. However, Tom has located someone at the facility that is of special interest. Let's refer back to the message, one sec. I have encountered no information regarding top secret development of new type weapons, but I have discovered there is an unexpected individual at this facility. The man is Dr. Kirk, the leading authority of our nation's energy research. Yeah, very interesting. We should have some more data around here about Dr. Kirk somewhere. Edward Kirk, I believe his full name is. Ah, here we go, pulling up the profile now. Refer to the data on Dr. Kirk. Yeah, even more interesting. First thing that pops up is a prompt telling us that Dr. Edward Kirk is marked as deceased. Digging a little further, Dr. Kirk seemed like he was coming up on a revolutionary breakthrough involving clean, sustainable energy. Looks like he made a pitch to the government, but was denied the financial support he needed to move forward with his research. The primary laboratory that Dr. Kirk was using was eventually closed down. Three years ago, he was reported to have been killed by an accident caused by an experiment that he was running. And yet, Tom has seen him in the facility that he's in. It may very well be possible his death was staged, but to what end? Is he working on something for a foreign military power? Tom's message wraps it up here, so let's give it a quick listen. Dr. Kirk was alleged to have died in an accident during the course of an experiment three years ago. The reports were premature and it appears that he is currently working as the head of a non-weapon project at this facility. The experiment is in the late stages of development. Regarding the staged accidental death, it appears that this country is somehow involved. Recommending that necessary actions be taken immediately. Whatever it is that Dr. Kirk is up to, it's enough for Tom to want necessary action taken immediately. Something big could be on the horizon, and if Tom is undercover, he might not be in a position to tell us everything he knows right now. Regardless, it sounds like it's time to move. Let's sync up mission parameters. Operation Instructions Secure Dr. Kirk and repatriate him swiftly. The game opens with Regina and three other team members airborne and getting set to dive towards Ibis Island where Dr. Kirk should be located. It's noted that there's a little bit of turbulence and the skies are a bit rough, but that won't stop the mission. Each member of the Special Forces team takes to the skies and slowly floats down to the island below, with instructions to rendezvous at the designated conversion zone, and then the mission will officially commence. After about 10 minutes, three out of four team members are together. Rick joins up with Gail and Regina, who have been waiting together. Gail, who is clearly the team leader, checks his watch and decides that it's time to move out. Regina takes one last look around and calls out to Gale that the fourth member of their team, Cooper, is still missing. However, the mission comes first and Cooper is left behind as Gale, Regina, and Rick make their way to their target area. We find out that Cooper lands way off target and he's deep within the jungle region of the island. Cooper quickly discovers that he is not alone as something big and massive is heading his way. Obviously terrified, Cooper takes off running deeper into the jungle. Whatever is after him is closing in, and it's closing in fast. I wonder what it could be. Finally, the creature reveals itself to be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Cooper is overtaken and quickly made into a meal. Rearing back, the T-Rex swallows Cooper and cries out to the jungle as a full moon can be seen in the skies above. Oh man, we are starting out with a bang, aren't we? Now before I move on, I do want to talk about spoilers. What I plan to cover here on the podcast regarding the story should not be considered a spoiler. I'm looking to just keep it surface level on this episode. 
Everything I've described so far happens in the game's first five minutes, and what I want to touch on moving forward won't ruin the game's plot for you. Half of what makes this game fun is slowly unraveling the mystery behind why dinosaurs are on the island, and I don't want to spoil that for you. I think the idea itself is pretty unique for what it is, but I really don't want to get into it. I want you to kind of discover it for yourself. The main chunks of what we'll go over here on the podcast today will be around the story setup, gameplay, presentation, and little bits and pieces of what you can unlock as you play. Alrighty, where were we? Oh, right. Cooper is set to become dinosaur droppings in a little while, and our main characters have just arrived at their objective. Once on site, Gale points out that playtime is officially over, kiddies, and it's mission time. Right off the bat, the team notices something is wrong. There are no signs of life outside the facility, and the lights inside a nearby guardhouse are out. Gale takes point and heads out to investigate. Rick, on the other hand, is going to infiltrate the facility itself and make his way to the control room on the first floor so he can access the security systems. Once he takes off, we're left outside and we're given control of Regina. Now before we head out and see what Gale has found, let's check out the control scheme. Any old-school veteran of Resident Evil will feel right at home here. Dino Crisis uses the old-style tank controls. What this means is movement is based on the direction the character on screen is facing, not necessarily the camera. If you press up on the directional pad, Regina will move forward based on which way she's facing. The left and right buttons swivel her body from left to right, and pressing down makes Regina walk backwards. I've probably explained tank controls a few times here in the Wildlands, and I still love this control scheme, even today. There's just something about it that works for me, even if it makes your movement a little clunky. Other parts of the traditional tank control scheme are present here as well. If you press the R1 shoulder button and hold it, Regina will draw and aim whatever weapon she has equipped. You can also move while your weapon is drawn, which is something you couldn't do in Resident Evil. Your X button is your interact button, so you can use that to search the environment for clues and pick up items that you find. Holding down your square button while you're moving will make Regina run. Running is something that you're going to be doing in this game a lot. Other than that, the controls are pretty standard. However, Dino Crisis also introduced a really cool maneuver in the form of the 180 degree quick turn. By pressing the R2 shoulder button, Regina will turn on her heels and face the opposite direction without having to slowly pivot her using the directional button. This is a fantastic new addition, as you're going to need to be as maneuverable as you can while you're facing down the enemies in this game. The only drawback to this move that I noticed is that Regina has to be at a complete standstill for this to work, so just keep that in mind as we go. And with that, that's it for the controls. Let's go see what Gale is up to. He's come across a torn open hole in the fence, along with puddles of blood and bullet shell casings. Seems like the shell casings are still a little warm, indicating that they were fired very recently. The hole in the fence is a very clean cut, and it doesn't make much sense in the context of what they're seeing. Gale and Regina continue to sweep the area, and soon Rick checks in over the radio to let the team know that he's made it to the control room without any resistance. Rick is a little concerned, though. He didn't see any signs of life as he made his infiltration, and he gets one of those Han Solo classic bad feelings because of it. Rick mentions that much of the facility's power has been cut, and because of that, he can't do much with the security system right now. He asks Regina to see if she can restore power to a nearby backup generator. Gale invites himself along, and the two of them make their way towards the back part of the facility. As they make their way through the winding fences of the back area, Gale and Regina come across the body of a security guard. It's not a pretty sight. The guard has been eviscerated. Something tore his intestines straight out of his body. Regina's reaction to the dead body is probably the one moment in this game that stands out to me above all the others. She walks over to it, looks down, and says to Gale, That's disgusting. I can't help but chuckle any time that I hear that. The opening moments of the game are so dark and foreboding that Regina's levity in this moment really helped pull me out of the tension for just a little bit. 
It also spoke to Regina as a character, and I immediately liked her because of this comment. It also made me wonder how deep Regina's personality really was. Could she be a hardened professional who's already seen a ton of death on her assignments? Or is she scared shitless right now, and this comment was her way of deflecting that fear? Now, the story of Dino Crisis isn't that deep, and we really don't get to know these characters all that well, but I personally think Regina is somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. Still, I like this moment, and it, combined with other moments in the story, cemented Regina as one of my favorite video game characters. After examining the body, Regina and Gale find the entrance to the backup generator. Gale stands outside to keep watch while Regina is tasked with getting the power back on. After completing the game's first puzzle, power is restored. As Regina turns around to head back, she hears gunfire and what sounds like Gale screaming. Then, all of a sudden, the gunfire stops and everything goes silent. Uh, Gale? You out there, buddy? We head outside and Gale is nowhere to be seen. Fresh blood is discovered and there's a new hole in the fence. Past the fence is a pretty steep cliff. Assuming that Gale may have taken a tumble over, Regina makes her way to the opening in the fence, all while she keeps hearing these noises around her. Huh, I wonder what could be out there. As Regina starts to call out to Gale, she draws the attention of the game's first velociraptor. In an intense moment, the raptor hops along several shipping containers and drops right in front of Regina. As it roars and bares its teeth, the game gives us back control of Regina. I remember my first time in this moment when I was a kid. Really, we have two choices here. We either stand our ground and fight, or we run our asses off and get the fuck out of there. At this point in the game, Regina only has a handgun on her. In my young mind, I'm thinking the raptor is the game's basic enemy type like the zombies in Resident Evil. So I say, screw it, let's try and take it down. I draw my gun and fire a couple rounds into the raptor. It barely registers being shot and continues to move towards me. Then, it jumps right on top of Regina, digs its teeth right into her arm, and starts to whip her around like she's some kind of ragdoll. I smashed my buttons on the controller as hard as I could, and Regina eventually broke free. Fuck this shit, I decided it's time to get the hell out of Dodge. I ran back towards the facility. I noticed as I was running that Regina seemed to be bleeding. Little spots of blood were falling to the ground and leaving a trail where she ran. The raptor was right behind her, and shit did that thing move fast. Even at a full sprint, it caught up and I barely made it to the door to get into the next area just in time. Whew. I walked through the door of the fence and it shut behind me and the scary music stopped. I was safe. As soon as I started to move forward, the raptor was back. It growled and hopped over the fence and landed right in front of me. The game gave me back control and there I was, face to face with the raptor again. The old rules of Resident Evil where zombies couldn't follow you from room to room were apparently out. These bastards were smart and they could follow you. I quickly headed into the next area, and once I made it through, the raptor decided he didn't want to put forth the effort of chasing me down anymore. It growled before it scampered off screen one final time. It's at this point that Rick calls up Regina over the radio and lets us know that the control system is back online and asks us how things are going on our end. Regina is quick to let Rick know that things are a little out of control. Gale is missing and they were attacked. When Rick asks if they ran into some facility guards, Regina doesn't sugarcoat it and lets him know exactly what happened. You're not going to believe this. He was attacked by some kind of dinosaur. Of course, Rick is just a little skeptical of that and cracks a joke at Regina's expense. Still hopped up on adrenaline, Regina is not having any of that. This isn't a joke, you idiot. We were just attacked by a big-ass lizard. Rick senses the tension in Regina's voice, and while he doesn't completely come off the idea that Regina is acting a little funny, he invites her to make her way to the control room so they can check in and work out exactly what happened. Regardless of what happened, Gale is still missing and there's plenty to be concerned about. From here, the game officially starts, and it's up to us to complete our mission. We need to locate and secure Dr. Kirk while keeping ourselves and our teammates alive in the process. I absolutely loved the opening to this game, it's probably one of my all-time favorites. 
In these opening moments, the game does a fantastic job of creating a tense atmosphere, and it's one that makes you feel very vulnerable throughout. I mean, you know there's going to be dinosaurs at some point. They're in the damn name of the game, right? But the game developers did a masterful job of setting the scene in these opening moments and immediately putting you on the defensive. Just think back to the experience I just described with the first raptor. In the single minute it was first revealed and I had my encounter with it, I learned a lot about what the game was going to be. Raptors are faster than me, they don't go down easily with gunfire, they can make us bleed, and they are not contained by the area that they're in. They can move from area to area with you. So I couldn't just move from one room to another and assume that I'll be safe anymore. Everywhere is dangerous, and it's going to take more than just sheer firepower to see us through to the end of the game. This was a whole new ball game, and it had its hooks in me immediately. Now, it's very easy to compare this game to the original Resident Evil titles, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But Dino Crisis absolutely stands on its own in terms of story, exploration, gameplay, and combat abilities. Let's take some time to dissect some of those so you know what it is that we're working with. I'm hoping that when it's all said and done, I'll have made a good enough case for you to either go back and find a way to play this game again, or dive in and play this game for the very first time. Okay, first up, let's talk about the game's presentation. By the time Dino Crisis came out in 1999, it was very clear that Capcom really had a handle on what they could do with the original PlayStation. Resident Evil games developed in this time frame all had pre-rendered, static backgrounds with fixed camera angles. They all looked great and functioned just fine for those games. Dino Crisis's... Crisis's? Crisis's... Dino Crisis's environments were all rendered in 3D, giving everything around you a more lively look and a more lively feel. In pre-rendered environments, your character and the items that you can interact with usually stood out against the backdrop, whereas everything in Dino Crisis has the same graphic fidelity throughout. Because of this, items would actually float off the ground and rotate so they're much easier to spot. Otherwise, they would just blend in so well with the background that you would probably just walk past them and not see them. Just a side note really quick, I'm making an assumption as to why the items in this game float. I didn't verify with any research or anything that this is actually the case. Another nice addition to Dino Crisis are the camera angles themselves. Now while the camera angles are still fixed in place in most spots, the camera will actually become dynamic and follow Regina around depending on the room that she's in. Not only does this look graphically impressive, it really helps to create a suspenseful and tense atmosphere. In the game's opening, the camera moves around you while you're winding through the fenced-off corridors, almost giving you the impression that you're being watched. The camera will even move around during some of the story cutscene moments, further enhancing those. While you might experience some graphical tearing, especially on the character models while this is happening, it's a small price to pay for the overall atmosphere. Dino Crisis really played out like a movie for me. The game's soundtrack, which I've already played snippets of here and there, is pretty good overall too. There's no music that sets itself apart from others in terms of memorability, but that's okay. The music is designed to create a tense atmosphere and also be used to amp up adrenaline-filled moments, and it accomplishes that task perfectly. 90% of this game takes place inside a research facility that can have a bit of a futuristic feel to it in the latter half of the game. The soundtrack has a modern, synthetic sort of feel to it, while also remaining very simple in moments of exploration and discovery. Also worth noting, Dino Crisis also shines when music is purposefully absent in some areas and before some key moments take place. The soundtrack as a whole does what it's designed to do, it further immerses you in its world and amplifies moments of isolation, danger, and adrenaline-induced moments where all you can do is fight or run for your life. When I would play this game late at night when I was a kid, it was the soundtrack more than the dinosaurs that would keep my blood pumping and my fingers shaking. Even replaying this game last week, I would be drawn into the world even more while I was sitting in my home office with the lights off, and that's all thanks to the wonderful soundtrack. There's a funny thing I noticed about the background music, too, I wanted to mention before I forget. As you fight and evade dinosaurs, you're bound to take damage. The tempo of the background music will actually get faster as you get closer to dying. 
It was a nice little touch that I don't think I ever noticed when I was a kid. There was a time where I was cornered by a raptor at the end of a hallway, and as I got closer to death, I noticed the music got faster, just like my heartbeat. As I was running away from the raptor, that whole moment was amplified by this little touch. Regina couldn't outrun the beast, but I barely made it into the next room. Oh, it was such an adrenaline rush. Dino Crisis also features CGI cutscenes during some of the story moments of the game as well. While I don't think these held up very well by today's standards, they are still a nice addition. I think Squaresoft really had a leg up on the CGI side of things during this point in time. I think back to games like Final Fantasy VII and Parasite Eve, and I argue their usage of CDI is of a much better quality. But still, it's not to say Dino Crisis had bad CGI. It was still good, dinosaurs and the environments looked awesome, it was just the people that looked a little funky to me, but I am nitpicking, and if you remember what I said in my last episode of the Retro Wildlands, nitpicking is now my superhuman power, so we're just gonna have to get used to it. Another cool feature that was made popular by Resident Evil was the door animations that served as loading screens as you moved from room to room. In Dino Crisis, the idea is the same, but you get to watch Regina herself move through the doors, navigate the stairs, and ride the elevators. And I thought that was pretty cool. And another nice little feature, the name of the room or the area that you're moving into will be displayed at the bottom of your screen. It really helped with the exploration aspect of the game. So those are the main points of the overall presentation. The graphics, camera angles, sound design, and the soundtrack help to create an amazing atmosphere where the player never really feels safe. What further pushes this idea are some of the gameplay elements themselves. While it's still easy to compare Dino Crisis to Resident Evil, overall gameplay was different enough between the two that Dino Crisis still had its own identity here. So let's run down some things I think are worth exploring a bit. Like I alluded to a little bit earlier, taking damage in Dino Crisis is pretty much inevitable. One thing I did notice pretty early on is there are no on-screen indicators of Regina's overall health. There isn't even a health meter or EKG readout inside the game's menu system anywhere. The only way you can tell how much damage you've taken is by looking at Regina herself. As she starts to take more damage, she'll visually start to hold her side or shoulder while she's standing still or hold herself while she's walking or running. She'll even start to move a little bit slower, too. When she's in a bad way and about to die, she'll start to limp really bad and her movement speed will be reduced drastically. This visual indicator of health was something that was done in Resident Evil 2, but in that game, you at least had a health meter in your menu screen to look at. This gave you a decent idea of how far gone you were, and you could plan your health item consumption around that. In Dino Crisis, it was really hard to tell how injured you actually were. Could you get by with limping a little bit to conserve a health item, or should you take it now? It created an interesting mental back and forth. The game really makes it a point to always let you know when you're injured so you're constantly aware of it. If you're limping or stumbling around, this is even reflected while you're moving around with your weapon drawn. I love that the development team programmed animations for every weapon type that you have. You'll also show your injured state while you're moving through doors, climbing ladders, and navigating stairs. Dinosaurs are a constant threat, and the game does a fantastic job of making you feel vulnerable all the time. Oh, and that reminds me of our first raptor encounter again. When I noticed Regina was bleeding after I took that thrashing, it wasn't just for aesthetics. Dino Crisis has a bleed mechanic. Certain enemy attacks can cause Regina to bleed, and until you stop it, she'll slowly lose her health while you're moving around. I don't think the dinosaurs you come across get any more agitated or riled up when you're bleeding, but my imagination would run wild with that thought. To stop the bleeding, you had to find a health item called a hemostat. Hemostat? Hemostat. Or the bleeding would stop on its own, but I clocked it at around three whole minutes for this to happen naturally. By that time, I was quite literally near death. It was yet another little feature that just ratcheted up the tension. Hemostats on their own were not all that common, so if you somehow screwed up to a point where you were bleeding out and you couldn't stop it, you just had to suffer. 
I remember panicking any time this happened, and I would run from room to room looking for a hemostat anywhere I could think to look. The same goes for health items in general. You really have to be careful not to take too much damage. Health items are about as rare as hemostats, and hemostats just stop the bleeding. They didn't actually heal you in their basic form, so you had to consider that. I remember a point in the game where I was on the verge of death for about 20 straight minutes after I got done bleeding all over the place. I had no health items and very little ammo. Every door I went through brought with it a thick sense of dread. I was no longer the hunter. I was definitely the hunted. And that mentality really changes how you approach this game. Eventually, though, I did get lucky and I found a med kit. But those 20 minutes had me on constant edge. Looking back, though, I really liked it, though. It was a really fun experience and something that is really unique to how Dino Crisis does its gameplay. Ah, and there's another gameplay mechanic that can really ratchet up the dread even more. Sometimes when you're hit by an enemy, you can actually lose the weapon that you're holding. Raptors are great for this. If they hit you with their long tail, you'll go flying, and there's a good chance your weapon will go flying too. Now if this happens, your gun will hit the ground, and it will be called out by a blue arrow indicator so you can see where it fell. To pick it back up, you just have to walk over to it and it adds it back to your inventory. Then you have to open up your menu and re-equip it. Depending on the situation, though, you may need to make a choice. Is it worth risking more damage to go pick up your weapon? Or should you maybe equip a different weapon if you have one? Or do you just need to get the hell out of there and come back later? Again, the game is full of ways to make you feel vulnerable, and nothing says vulnerable like not having a way to fight back. This sort of thing didn't happen to me too terribly often, so I didn't feel like it was overused or unfair in any way. It was mostly random, and usually happened at the worst of times. Now, if all that weren't bad enough, some dinosaurs can actually follow you from room to room. This feature was something that wasn't always scripted either. If you leave a room for another one, there's a chance that the dinosaur that you just ran from can burst through the door and follow you. Talk about being vulnerable, right? Again and again, this game continues to make you feel vulnerable. With the exception of a few rooms in the game, dinosaurs can and usually follow you anywhere, and you're made to never really feel safe. The nice thing is, kind of like losing your weapon, this feature isn't overly used, at least I didn't think so. There was a point during my 20 minutes of terror that a dinosaur was following me for several rooms, but it did give up after a bit. Like I said, the feature is more so to make the player feel like nowhere is truly safe and you needed to be on your guard at all times. And that is exactly how I felt for most of the game. Heh, <laughs> now that I stopped to think about it, this game really does have it out for us, doesn't it? But that's okay. We do have some tools and tricks at our disposal that we can use to survive. So let's talk about those and see if we can even the odds a little bit. We find out pretty quickly that most enemies in this game are tough, and they can take quite a bit of punishment and resources to eliminate them completely. What's worse, clearing out a dinosaur from one area doesn't mean another one won't take its place later. That's right, sometimes dead dinosaurs can seemingly respawn. That makes ammunition in Dino Crisis even more precious. It becomes clear very quickly that you will not find enough ammo to kill every dinosaur you come across. You're either going to have to be really good at evading or find another method. That's where the game's mix feature comes into play. As you explore, you'll find a decent amount of medical items lying around. Items like anesthetic aids, recovery aids, intensifiers, and multipliers. You'll also find your standard issue medical kits and those hemostats I mentioned. By mixing these items and other items together, you can create all sorts of supplies and weapons. For example, if you mix a recovery aid with your medkit, you can increase the medkit's healing potential and even make it capable of stopping your bleeding like a hemostat would. If you mix something with a multiplier, it will increase the quantity of that item. You can also mix anesthetic aids with health items and potentially make tranquilizer darts that you can fire at dinosaurs and make them fall asleep so you can navigate around them safely. Mixing is an absolute key feature to ensure your survival, but you also had to be sure that you were very careful with it. Resources are still pretty limited across the game, 
so you would often have to decide, do you need a health item right now, or could you use it to create more tranquilizer darts? While the game gave you somewhat of an idea of what item you're going to create before you actually pull the trigger, it really wanted you to experiment. Even the instruction manual didn't have much in the way of an explanation. I remember when I was little, I would break out a piece of paper and try out different combinations of things and I wrote down all my results. I would do this right after I saved my game, and then I would reload it after I finished working through the items that I currently had on me. It really, really helped in the long run. This way I had a guide that I could reference back to if I came across new items, or if I had something I needed to create and I couldn't remember quite how I did it the last time. You can find guides online nowadays, but back in my day, it was pen and paper, sonny. Whenever I play this game, though, I usually don't find myself mixing things unless I have an absolute need. The game isn't really generous with items, but I still hoarded whatever I could save. Which brings me to how Dino Crisis does inventory management. In Resident Evil, you have item boxes that you can dump items in, and through some gaming magic, all item boxes in the game are connected, and you can access items you put in one room from another room. Dino Crisis has a similar system, but with a little bit of a twist. Scattered across the facility and embedded into the walls are emergency boxes. You have to open them with plugs that you'll find scattered across the environment. Now what's more, there are three types, and they are all color-coded. Red ones, green ones, and yellow ones. When you open one, they come with some items already put inside them, and the color is indicative of the types of items that you'll find within. Red ones usually contain ammo, green ones usually contain medical items, and yellow ones can contain both. Emergency boxes are linked together, so you can access one emergency box contents from another, but only if they are colored the same. Red is linked to red, green is linked to green, yellow linked with yellow. On top of that, plugs are limited too. You can't open all the boxes in the game with the amount of plugs that are available, at least I don't think so. You have to keep this in mind as you play. It's just one more thing to pile on that you have to juggle when it comes to planning for your survival. So while you're either fighting or evading dinosaurs, you still have a mission to complete. You're going to need to search the environment for clues and gain access to other parts of the facility in order to progress the story. Resident Evil was known for its puzzles and item fetch quests, but Dino Crisis takes this notion and really runs with it. This game is full of puzzles, riddles, and other brain teasers. Now, I love puzzles in games just as much as the next person, but sometimes games can get bogged down by their decision to incorporate puzzles and riddles. Now, in my opinion, a puzzle needs to do three things for it to be considered effective in a video game. First, a puzzle has to make some sense in relation to the environment that you're in or the overall theme of the game. It's just not thrown in for the sake of it. Second, it can't be so hard that you consider quitting the game over it. It has to be accessible to the point that you can either figure it out over a period of time or even stumble across the answer through trial and error. And third, you should feel a genuine sense of accomplishment when you do solve that puzzle. So do the puzzles in Dino Crisis meet my personal criteria? Yes, most of the time. All the puzzles fit pretty well into the environment. They're things like changing out batteries for a generator and putting their colors in the right order, decoding locks using a letter and number passcode system, as well as things like lining up different shaped pipes in order to turn on a generator. There are no diamond or spade keys here, Resident Evil fans. You even have to operate a crane to move some shipping containers out of the way, and you only have so many moves with the crane to pull that off. One of my favorite puzzles involves a keycard system. You can change the ID on a keycard you come across to have somebody else's credentials, which will allow you to access different parts of the facility that you're in. To do that, you have to locate that person's five-digit employee ID number, but you also need to get their fingerprints to verify the transfer. Early on, I came across the user ID I needed, but I had no idea how to get the fingerprints with the device that I found. I figured out that you can use the fingerprint device on the many dead researchers and scientists scattered around, but which one was the guy whose ID I had? Once I found that person's pager number, 
the game let me page that person using a phone on a desk. Once I walked into a room where that specific person's corpse was, I heard the pager going off, and I knew I had the right person. That was a pretty unique puzzle. I have to give props for that one. Overall, though, I will say the sheer amount of puzzles was a bit too much. I felt like the game could have done with a couple less of them, but I didn't really dread doing any of them when I replayed the game. And once you figure out some of the numerical codes, you can just write them down and keep them for the next time since they never do change. And you're going to want to do that in general anyway. When you come across clues or numbers in a file, you know you're going to need to use them for a puzzle sooner or later, so you may as well just take a note for future reference. The biggest reason for that is when you read a memo, you don't actually take that memo with you so you can't reference it later. Pen and paper, again, is going to be your friend here. You need to make sure you note anything that might be valuable. If you're at a point in the game where you can't progress, go back and research some of the rooms. You more than likely missed a file that had something on it that you needed. That happened to me this past weekend. I was lost for about a solid half hour, only to discover that I missed a single file that was on the ground of this room that I thought I had already thoroughly searched. It was a little agitating, but still, the game's puzzles did a great job of breaking up the tension and allowed me to hunker down and solve a problem instead of always having to tiptoe from room to room. And let me reiterate, search every room you come across thoroughly. If you aren't missing a code or a clue to a puzzle, you're more than likely going to be missing an item that you need to move forward. I know that sounds hard to do, especially with the items floating above the ground and very obvious, but I remember being lost a second time when the item I needed was actually in this big, massive elevator room. I walked in and spotted the one item I went in there to retrieve right in the center, but I didn't realize another key item that I was going to need later was just out of camera view. I can't decide if I fault the game for that or myself, but either way, I was pretty pissed off when I finally found that thing. And that's more or less the gameplay in a fat dinosaur nutshell. Or eggshell. Whatever. Bad joke. As you find more items to unlock more areas, you progress the story and slowly the mystery of Ibis Island is explained. Now the story isn't just an A to B sort of plot. Dino Crisis introduces some live player choice that will determine how you go about your mission and ultimately how the game ends. It offered some fantastic replay value, and a great incentive to replay the game multiple times. While the game doesn't really get too deep into the backstory and motivations of your team members, Rick and Gale's surface-level personalities are made pretty clear early on. Gale is the team leader, and he's your typical, the mission comes first, sort of individual. He's a hard-ass who doesn't have a sense of humor, and will quickly abandon a comrade if it means staying on mission. I mean, that point was made pretty well clear in the very beginning of the game when Gale decides to move on without Cooper. Aside from Gale's dickish nature, it's clear he's a seasoned veteran and he can hold his own in a fight. Now Rick, on the other hand, is more or less his opposite. Rick makes it clear pretty early that he doesn't really care for Gale when he's not at all concerned with him turning up missing in the game's opening. Rick will absolutely forgo completing a mission if it means ensuring the survival of his teammates, and it's pretty obvious why he and Gale will never be seen together in a bar having a beer. But instead of leaving all of this as background elements in the main story, Dino Crisis uses your teammates' personalities and feelings towards the situation to potentially influence you and some of the choices that you'll have to make. Here's an early example. As you explore the facility, Rick calls you back to the control room to discuss something with you and Gale. I guess small spoiler, Gale does return after the initial raptor encounter, but we all knew that was going to happen. Anyway, when you get to the control room, Gale mentions that he saw movement on one of the security monitors in the underground area of the facility. He couldn't make out what he saw, but he knows what he saw was definitely human. It could be Dr. Kirk. Right as the group forms a plan to investigate the underground, Regina's communicator lights up. It's a distress beacon. Someone on the team is asking for help. Regina thinks it might be Cooper, but Rick also thinks it could be Tom, the undercover asset that's been embedded in the facility. We, as the player, know that it's definitely not Cooper, so it has to be Tom. Now, it's made pretty clear who wants to do what. 
Gale wants to proceed to the underground and locate the person he saw on the monitor. Rick wants to follow the distress signal and potentially save the life of his teammate. Even though Gale is the team leader, I don't think there's a ranking structure here because when Gale tells Rick to deal with the survivor later, Rick more or less tells Gale to go fuck himself and he heads out. Gale shakes his head and tells Regina that he's heading to the underground. When both men are gone, you're left with your first choice, and the game tells you to choose what idea that you most believe in. Either stay on mission and search for clues to find Dr. Kirk, or divert and rescue your comrade immediately. The game is going to present similar choices as you go. Some of these choices will put you in areas of the facility that you can't access otherwise. Other choices have you taking different approaches to solve a single problem. Another quick example, you have to start a generator later in the game. The parts you need are available, but they are one floor below you, and the path to get there is crawling with dinosaurs. Or, you can try to assemble the parts that you need on the floor that you're currently on, but it's going to require you to solve several puzzles and put things together yourself. It could potentially be time-consuming. Do you follow Gale's approach and rely on your skills to go the more direct but dangerous route? Or do you follow Rick's approach, save your ammo, but spend time going through puzzle after puzzle to make your own parts? I really like the addition of this to the game mechanic, and like I said, it added great replay value to subsequent playthroughs. I won't spoil anything, but the very last choice in the game will start to determine what overall ending that you're going to get for your playthrough. But I encourage you, if you've never played this game before, do what you think is right. It'll make the ending that much more satisfying, I think. Now, the choice system isn't as deep as I would have liked it to be on the character development level, but that's just, again, 38-year-old me looking back at it and complaining. Siding with one person over the other didn't really change that person's opinion of Regina as a person in any meaningful way, nor did Regina develop any differently depending on the choices that she made. I would have loved for Regina to become more of a hard-ass as she sided more with Gale, or more compassionate as she sided with Rick. Instead, she tends to toe the line of indifference, while still staying somewhat on mission at all times while keeping a sass that is all her own. Which is fine. I love her character as it is. I would have just liked to mold it one way or another with the choices that we had the opportunity to make. Maybe that's something for the Dino Crisis remake. Anyone from Capcom listening? Dino Crisis remake? Maybe if we all collectively wish it enough, we can will it into existence. Anywho. Speaking of replayability, what kept me coming back to Dino Crisis when I was little were all the unlockables that you could get once you complete the game. You get your typical assortment of extra costumes for Regina after you finish the game a few times. I'm not usually one for extra costumes, honestly, but the ones that you could unlock in this game are pretty cool overall. One that stood out was this outfit that makes Regina look like a cavewoman. But what's really cool about it is that when you use this outfit, her weapons will actually look like bones, completing the aesthetic. If you could find the grenade launcher, I read somewhere that it's actually a giant fish-looking thing. It certainly wasn't needed, but it's a great little touch. Other than the costumes, you can eventually unlock a grenade launcher with unlimited ammo. That's always fun, and I loved being able to go back and just destroy all the dinos I used to have to run away from. Payback is sweet. Now, if you beat the game in under five hours, you'll unlock a new mode called Operation Wipeout. In this little mini-game mode, you're tasked with eliminating all dinosaurs in specific areas, and you have limited ammo and time to do it in. It's an interesting challenge and forces you to think quickly and tactically about how you go about this. You can mix items like the main game, but it can be a risk depending on what items you use and how you use them. There's no reward for completing this game other than posting a faster completion time, but when I was little, I would try to beat my previous times constantly. It was a great exclamation point at the end of an already great experience for me. So if it hasn't been abundantly clear, I really like Dino Crisis as an overall package. I know some people tend to criticize some aspects of the game, though. You're in a brick-and-mortar facility and laboratory setting most of the game, so environments are gonna start blending together. Also, there really isn't much actual action to be had in this game overall. 
By design, you're going to be spending more time running for your life than you are standing your ground and fighting. There are some pretty cool set pieces, especially ones involving the T-Rex, but they are few and far between. And at its core, the game can be pretty difficult. If you find yourself cornered by a dinosaur, it will not take much for it to kill you outright, even if your health is completely full. Some of the bigger dinos you eventually come across seem like they'll hit you no matter how you try to run around them or dodge past them, and they're just too big to take down in most cases. And don't get me started on the few times you have to worry about the pterodactyls. But not only can I look past all these little things, I can embrace them. Dino Crisis is a unique gameplay experience, and unless someone grants my wish and remakes this game, we're not going to have a game quite like this one for a very long time. Dino Crisis has the ability to always put you on edge as the player. You're never overpowered, you never really have an advantage, and you're never going to truly feel safe. You may have some moments where you have a generous supply of ammo and it'll help get you out of a jam, but your enemy is plentiful, and just because you clear them out of one area doesn't mean that they're not going to be back later. Just like the sand people in Star Wars, they'll be back, and sometimes they'll come back in greater numbers. But it isn't just the presence of the enemies you can see that makes this game what it is. The atmosphere this game creates is an enemy all its own. Dino Crisis quickly establishes to the player that on Ibis Island, you're in a foreign land, and you are not welcome here. There's no chance you can assert your dominance because you will never be the dominant force. You may be able to prolong the inevitable by evading the creatures of the island or putting them down temporarily, but sooner or later, you'll start to wear out and run out of supplies. You'll eventually make a mistake, trip up at the wrong time, and that's when they're going to get you. So do you think you have what it takes to survive this dino crisis? If you've never played this game before, I implore you to find a way. If you have played this game before, please consider giving it another go. Revisiting this game was amazing after all these years, and I still feel a sense of accomplishment after completing it. Every time I play this game, I never really know what to expect. I think Dr. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park sums up this thought perfectly when he said, Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, have just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea what to expect? that, as they say, is that. This has been episode 12 of the Retro Wildlands Dino Crisis for the Sony PlayStation. Thank you all very much for listening to the show today. I hope you all enjoyed it. This was another fun one to go back and play through, and it's been a pleasure to be able to talk to you all about it and share with you how much it is that I love this game. As always, I hope this episode brought out some sparks of nostalgia for those who have played this game before, and if nothing else, I hope it was entertaining for all. If you like the show and want to show it and myself some support, please consider following us on whatever podcasting platform you're using to listen to this, and if you can, please leave us a good review. Every week the show grows by just a little bit, and I would love to see if we can grow it even a little bit more. Good reviews and follows will definitely help with that. One thing that will absolutely help is if you could consider spreading the word about the podcast. If you know someone who might like the show, please let them know. Or if you're not sure who might like it and you're feeling adventurous, hit up a random person next time you're out and about. I think a great time is when you're in the security line at an airport. Sometimes those things just take fucking forever, am I right? Use this as an opportunity to share the retro wildlands with someone suffering in line with you. I can't imagine the in-flight entertainment is much better than our podcast, so you're doing your fellow human being a service by offering some options. Now speaking of options, don't forget you can follow us over on social media. 
Spice up your feeds with some gaming goodness by following us over on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RetroWildlands. While I'm going to continue to play the old man card when it comes to how I use social media, I'm trying to post something mildly entertaining as often as it makes sense to. Not only is it the best place to get updates on upcoming episodes, you can see what games I'm playing, funny gaming photos, pictures of my dogs, and all sorts of other cool little things. If nothing else, join us on social for an opportunity to interact with the show. Before each new episode on Thursday, I'm going to make a call out on social media platforms for comments and questions, and I'll read and answer them in the show's intro. I want to give you all a chance to join the show in a fun way, so keep an eye out for those. I'm going to try and post those call-outs the weekend before each new episode and see how that works. I know we still don't have a lot of listeners, but I wanted to see if this would attract listeners to social media and potentially give those of you that have been hanging out with us for a while a way to get more involved if you wanted to. Absolutely no obligation or anything, just something I wanted to open up to the masses. And if that weren't enough, if you follow us on social media, we'll follow you back. We can be creepers on each other's profiles, and I'll like the pictures you post of your Halloween decorations. It'll be a great time. So what's coming up next week? I have a couple games that I'm gearing up to do some podcast recordings on. ToeJam & Earl is coming up for the Sega Genesis, and I recently went back and played through Contra for the original Nintendo, so I'm thinking about that one in the near future as well. There are a few others as well, so check us out on social media. Whichever game I decide on for episode 13 will probably make its way up there at some point if you can't wait until next Thursday. I really don't want to be the gaming podcast that did a scary game right before Halloween, but I'm fixing to do that because, well, it's my show and I love Halloween, so keep an eye out for that game to be revealed on social too. I'm pretty excited for the next few weeks, so I hope you all continue to hang out with me by the campfire. I still have plenty more stories to share and experiences to talk about. I can't wait to get back together with you all next week. So until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. (laughs) 